Philip is the visionary behind MarketShare's innovative approach in utilizing grassroots organizing strategies gleaned from his experience in campaign politics to motivate entire communities to build lasting public institutions for the common good. Throughout his career working on three continents in Oceania in the nonprofit and public sectors, he has demonstrated a particular deafness in crossing cultures to unite diverse communities to solve shared problems and generate value for all. Find previous episodes, playlists, and more at NoBlueprintPodcast.com. Be sure to follow, like, share, rate, and subscribe on Twitter, Instagram, and Facebook. Peace. One night, we had a bunch of, I get somebody found some sea turtle eggs, like buried in the beach. And so I come back, and they're boiling in this pot, and my host father, you know, gets one out for me, and kind of tells me to just open it up and eat it and so I did and it's it's like in the top five of worst things I've ever eaten <laughs> and um it was like a like a grainy off watery egg I mean it was it was bad and it, it was tough to keep it down and he's like oh what do you think and I was like you know trying to be polite I was like oh, it's okay like I don't know and he's like we don't really like them. And I was like, what? <laughs> you know, like, and I was like, why are we, you know? What's up, everybody? I go by the name of Domo. And I go by the name of Yoshko. And each week, we sit down with cultural ambassadors to talk about how they defied societal norms to live their lives with, with no, no blueprint. My name is Philip Deng. I live in North Beacon Hill. I'm 31. I've grown up all over the United States, and right now I lead a local nonprofit called Market Share here in Seattle. And what we're trying to do is turn King Street Station downtown into an international street food market that gives low-income immigrants and refugees a place to start a small food business, it gives them opportunities that they otherwise wouldn't have to be entrepreneurs. And then for the rest of our community, it's a place to first and foremost, have really, really great, diverse, delicious food, but also connect as a community over culture. Nice. That was really good. How do you define culture? I've been thinking about that since about (laughs) two minutes ago when (laughs) you started priming me. I have lots of of thoughts, but I don't know if, well, I guess you didn't ask me for the definition of culture, but mine, huh? Mm -hmm. I think it, culture is... It's the flavor that arises from how different groups around the world create their societies and create their communities. So there's a function that underlies a lot of culture, I think. The ways that we cook, uh, the ways that we govern, the ways that we associate and build and assemble. I think these are all aspects of culture. But then I think when we reference culture, it's almost like we're referencing flavors or genres Uh, because there's so many different kinds of culture. And I mean, you can really look at any group of people. You could look at team culture, office culture, uh, American culture, Asian American culture. Mm -hmm. So these are all groups and how they associate, how they communicate and build and create and fulfill whatever their mission is. It's Mm -hmm. the way they do it, I think, is, is how I would interpret culture. For sure, for sure. How did you get to Seattle? I came to Seattle for the first time in 2000. 
with my dad. The two of us came from Minnesota. My parents had divorced a few years before that. And my mother stayed there with my brother and, and now I have a sister as well. And then my father and I came out here because he's originally from the West Coast and his law firm has an office here. And so he, he was looking for a start. And I think my folks decided that both parents really wanted to be involved and wanted to be parents very actively. So I think that's how they split us. And that was really tough and has had a big impact on, on all of us. But that's how my dad and I came out to Seattle. We ended up on Mercer Island. Uh, that's where he still lives. So I went to Mercer Island High School for four years. But then I was gone for eight years and came back in 2012. And I've been here uh, ever since then. Nice, nice. Tell me about the cultures that you personally identify with and the cultures that inspire you. I identify as an Asian American. For people who you know can't see me or don't know me, I'm, I'm Chinese American. My father's family, uh, his parents were from a region of southern China, and my parents or my mother's parents were from uh, more northern coastal China. Mm-hmm. So distinct there, but in in this country, definitely, I identify as Asian. It has a, a major influence on my life. Mm-hmm. I think politically, I have an identity that I have an affinity with, more progressive. A lot of I think, uh, at least the ideas that are talked about in Seattle being more progressive, accepting, kind of looking at how we can better relate to one another and and look globally, uh, you know, kind of beyond boundaries that have existed, or at least evaluating whether these boundaries are, are really relevant between us. I also identify as an entrepreneur. I'm three and a half years into uh, running Market Share, which is uh, a group I started. To the best of my knowledge, I, I think I'm having a very, a very typical entrepreneurial experience. It's been a real struggle. I kind of wouldn't have it any other way. Sure. And I think I've heard it described similarly. It's been an enormous amount of sacrifice, but I, at the same time, I, I get more in learning back than I think I've ever gotten per day in my life. And so I think I now have sort of a culture of entrepreneurship that that I understand a little bit in terms of how I make decisions, how I spend my resources, how I lead, how I talk about what I do. So there's definitely that. I just finished up, or I'm finishing up a program called Leadership Tomorrow here in Seattle, uh, which is a pretty cool group that focuses on uh, the, the principles of servant leadership really just how to be a, a trustee or a custodian of your community and how to make it you know, a better place for everybody, a more sustainable place. This year we really focused on racial equity. So more, more so, I'm, I think I am trying to understand positive leadership culture. Mm-hmm. Um, so that's another one that um, I'm beginning to identify with. And the cultures that inspire me, this is going to sound a little bit general and a little bit cliche, but groups that are marginalized uh, and still prevail, whether it's a racial group or if you experience a disability. or I, I spent a year, first year out of college, uh, as a volunteer teacher in the Marshall Islands. So very distinct culture, but only about 60,000 people in the entire country, and it's a very small country. 
and it's a low-lying island nation. So, you know, recent talks about climate change is is they're on the front lines. I mean, they're literally going to be underwater. Um, so that's a culture that is that is old, distinct, but also under threat, very vulnerable. Mm. So the folks doing work to advocate for them, I think that's your question was about inspiring cultures. Yeah. So that's kind of one example of of a culture that really takes work sure. that you really have to to put that on every day and wear it. Whereas there, I think there are more passive cultures. It's pretty easy for me to be uh, liberal in Seattle. So that's for not sure. it's not something that I have to work really hard to. <laughs> for sure, for to sure. So I, I you know I wouldn't be inspired by my own liberalism here, right. you know? Right. Um, so something that takes a little bit of, of guts to do. Do you have a background in business? I have no background in business. I've actually only done work uh, in the nonprofit and public sector. So I was, uh, I did not nonprofit work as a volunteer teacher for two years, then a program coordinator, uh, still with a nonprofit, but doing sort of human environmental work for another year or so. Then I had some political campaign experience on the 2012 Obama campaign. And then I worked for two years for U.S. Senator Patty Murray here in her Seattle office just downtown. And I was doing constituent services. So a lot of folks don't know that you can call up or go to your elected officials and they can help you out if you have sort of any matters that concern federal agencies. They have caseworkers who can help you out with that stuff. So I was doing work in uh, Senator Murray's office. Uh, and it was in my evenings that I started Market Share. So, yeah, doing this with no no business background. Oh, wow. <laughs> nice. Yeah. So what inspired you to start Market Share? Or was it like an event or a moment where you thought, why don't we have this in Seattle? Uh, that that was the how the, the original vision of a market came into my mind. It was during the campaign in 2012. I had the 37th legislative district, the northern half of it was my assignment. So I was in Yesler Terrace where there's a large Somali immigrant population and it was Ramadan, actually it's Ramadan now, so a few years ago and they, they were cooking uh, the food that they would break fast with each night, but they, they're cooking something out on, on their grills in the backyard, I think it was like a stew. And it was one of the most delicious smelling things. And I'm wandering around this neighborhood for hours and I'm like really hungry. And I got to talking to this this woman about what that was and where I could try it. And she just said, nowhere. This is just stuff we have at home. This is community food, this is our food. There's no restaurants. So in, in that moment, I thought back to Asian street food culture when I lived in uh, China for three years. I, I got to travel to Thailand and several parts of, of China and I just thought back to all the, the nights that I'd spent with friends just eating at, at markets and, and hanging out and all that time and I just thought if we had a space like that in Seattle where this woman could start a, a little spot selling that stew, I think a lot of people would, would go there. Mm. So I envisioned this what looks kind of like a food hall in my in my head, but you know, really built with a mission to to lower barriers to allow immigrants and refugees to start their businesses, not just like uh, a gourmet sort of designer mm -hmm. spot. But it took a few more years to decide to start Market Share because I didn't really know how I would build mm -hmm. that market, and 
what finally clicked was a friend of mine, I was applying to business school and I was writing an essay about why I wanted to go to business school. So I was talking about starting this nonprofit to build this market after I go to business school and learn mm -hmm. how to do it. And she said, why don't you just do it? Like I had laid out all the steps. She said, I don't see why business school <laughs> is a step that needs to be in here. And it's gonna cost more yep. to go to business school for a year than to actually just try this. Mm -hmm. So I mean, I, I didn't get into that school and I decided I agreed uh, that she was right, that I had actually, um, I had done enough research, I'd talked to enough people, I'd bounced the idea off all these folks, and I didn't even realize that I'd kind of connected the circuit yeah. until she kind of turned on the light, and I was like, oh, it works. <laughs> and I, so I was like, okay. That let me see that the opportunity to start market share was there. And the whole principle was that um, to build a public market like the one in my head, coming at it from the perspective of a developer was wrong. Um, that a truly public market isn't developed, it's organized into being. Mm -hmm. So it really comes from the community first, not from designing the space. Mm -hmm. So what I thought was, I will start a nonprofit that takes the principles of grassroots political campaigning and reapplies them to building better public spaces, better public solutions. So that's that's what the idea of market share was. And then she said, well, why don't you just start that? I, I kind of looked at my situation mm. and I think then it became, well, why shouldn't I start it? Mm. There just really was not a single good reason. You know, I have my health, I have a supportive family, uh, no dependents, a little bit of, of money saved up. Mm. Um, I had a steady job at the senator's office that ended pretty promptly at five every day. So I had evenings relatively free to do this. So kind of just had had all the the right characteristics in my life where I, I should be the one to take that risk, mm. mm -hmm. you know? So just kind of started Googling how to start a nonprofit in Washington State, like, <laughs> literally, <laughs> and right. started reading the Secretary of State's website, you know, how do you do this, what forms do I need to fill out, you know, uh, okay, need, need a board of directors, need a, articles of incorporation, all that kind of stuff, and just kind of fumbled my way through it. Yeah, so that's Absolutely. how I started it. Absolutely. Wow. Shout out to your friend who was like, just do it, because I think a lot of times, it is our friends who are listening to our ideas that are like that connect the dots for us that are like wait but you don't need you don't need this gatekeeper to tell you you're good enough and you don't need this piece of paper to validate you just do it um i think it's because you're on the inside so you see it from one way but they're seeing it from the outside right so they see it from a different perspective absolutely i want to go back after high school where did you go and what did you want to do after high school, I went to Tufts University in Medford, Massachusetts, mm -hmm. and I had no idea what I wanted to do. You don't, you don't want to like wish for a do-over uh, for any part of your life because, like, you know, I, I'm I'm pretty appreciative of where I've ended up. Sure. So you have to go through that. Right. But I'll be the first one to to give myself, you know, outside of GPA, a pretty bad grade for college because <laughs> I just didn't, I didn't seize the opportunity mm -hmm. I mean and 
I, I didn't know how. So like I'm not I'm not kicking myself too much because I remember where I was back then, mm-hmm. and um, I think one of the things that held me back was that I didn't really know how to make and keep space in my life. So I think what I arrived at was what a lot of folks arrive at. Suddenly you're in a dorm, mm-hmm. and where in high school you really had to put in a lot of effort to make time for relationships to form outside of school. I mean, you had to, you know, before you could drive or if you didn't have a car, you gotta ask the parents or figure right. out. I mean, you have to make space. Right. And now you're constantly with other people. And so right. I just started being, quote unquote, friends with the people I lived near. Mm. And it wasn't necessarily based on anything other than that proximity. Right. And so it took me, most of college, three years to realize that I needed to learn how to do the opposite, which is sort of not push people away in, in a, a confrontational way, but like m- make space and for the people I really, really wanted to get to know mm. and keep them close and then realize that other folks were acquaintances or, or, or sure. beyond. So I was just really moody and my, my friends just called me emo and you know I was always I was not going out very much I, I do wish I had tried out for uh, the acapella group I wish I had taken a, an intro drama class I wish I had studied abroad and these were all opportunities that were just right there but I was so in my head as I have been in different periods of my life uh, that they didn't even seem real. They didn't seem like something I could even grab. Found some of my best friends in life mm-hmm. my senior year. So, as I said, kind of a, a, a very important experience, very important place and time. So that's what I did. And I left college barely knowing what I wanted to do. I knew that I wanted to be of service to people. <laughs> the most general thing... <laughs> I didn't know which people, I didn't know how to serve. Right. Like I just knew that there I had in my head this very very basic equation that I still use in living. There's a whole uh, series of inputs, like the energy that I consume, the food, the opportunities, the support. Like my existence takes something mm-hmm. to make that possible. And then I have an output whether you know outside of work or anything that I'm trying to do mm-hmm. but I have an output my existence creates something into this world mm-hmm. every day all the time mm-hmm. it's never stopped and so I wanted the final accounting of my life to be a net positive so I haven't gone through this world consuming consuming more than I end up leaving mm-hmm. so that's all I had my mom said I think you should go to the peace corps and that was the best idea I had. So I was kind of in the midst of that process when a group in Cambridge, Massachusetts called World Teach, uh, they have an office there and I was on my way to my summer job and I, I walked in off the street because mm-hmm. I heard that they had international volunteer programs. And uh, I talked to this guy who just took some time out of whatever he was doing to tell me about the organization. We chatted a bit. I said I wanted to go to their China program and he said, well, you know, you'd be a good candidate for next year. And I'm like halfway out the door. And he goes, wait, can you leave next week? And I was like, for China? And he's like, no, for the Marshall Islands. 
I was like, what are the Marshall Islands? <laughs> and so he had to like get out a, a map and, a, right. and he showed me these, I don't even know if they were, they were dots on the map. It's like the sixth or seventh smallest country in the world. Mm. And, and he said, we had a volunteer just drop out and orientation's done. Teachers are already on ships going out to their outer placements. Would you go? And I said, you know, well, can you tell me a little bit? And they, he said, well, it's an outer island. It's a little bit of an extreme placement. So you're not going to have electricity. You're not going to be able to contact people, um, you know, electronically. You're going to cook on fires. You won't have running water. Mm. You'll spearfish. And as soon as he said spearfish, I was like, all right, I'm in. <laughs> okay. That's good. And they bought me a plane ticket. Like I literally left their office with a plane ticket. Um, they took my word for everything that I said, and I went home and I sent them my Peace Corps essays and my medical forms, and a few weeks later I was I was in the Marshall Islands. Yeah, right. and so that's So kinda, this happened right after graduation? This happened a few months, it was the summer of 2008, wow. a few months after graduation, definitely was in a little bit of panic mode, because yeah. I, I didn't know how my Peace Corps application was going. Mm. So some intentionality, like right. I want to serve, right. you know, right. but a, a lot of, you know, good fortune as well. Wow. And some somebody who's now in Seattle, and I just reconnected with him after right. all these years, his name is Dom uh, Choi, and he gave me a chance. Uh, on on whatever he saw, yeah. that that guy walking into his office. So we reconnected just a few weeks ago, and so I, I he I mean he changed my life in in wow. fifteen minutes. Shout so. out to that guy. Wow. Yeah. Shout out to that guy. And for folks Great. listening who don't know, where are the Marshall Islands? If you draw a line from Hawaii to like Australia, there's somewhere about in the middle. Okay. So there's some of the most remote uh, inhabited islands in the world. It's really very, very far away. And I think that there's a, a, more than a million square miles of ocean territory mm -hmm. that the country has and less than 70 square miles of land. Wow. Part so, of the Micronesian islands, right? It's very close to Micronesia. Okay. Yeah. So there's like a bunch of, uh -huh. yeah. 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 So there's a bunch of coral atolls. It's one of the most beautiful places. Yeah. Dom told me that this would ruin tropical vacations for me forever, <laughs> and he's correct. Yep. Like pristine, wow. but a hard because life. Because it's too. untouched, right? It's really untouched. Yeah. Like you, you're on islands, you know, where hundreds of people ever have stood on. Yeah. You know, so it's like. It's, it's, it's pretty pristine. What did you learn about culture living in Boston? I learned about my Asian identity. So I was born in San Francisco, and I lived there until I was six. Mm -hmm. And I spoke English and two dialects of Chinese. Mm -hmm. And I had a caretaker who was from China, saw Asian people all the time. Mm -hmm. You know, I actually didn't even know that... I, I went to a preschool where all the kids looked different. I mean, mm -hmm. I had I had classmates of of every color, mm -hmm. and it wasn't until I went to Minnesota that I realized that wow, like this <laughs> is what it means to be different, and this is what it means to be picked on because of my race. Mm -hmm. So 
in Minnesota, I learned about my my culture and kind of what being different meant. And then I came to Seattle, and there's a larger, much larger Asian population. And in in some ways, it's a little better integrated, I would say. So I kind of I took that for granted. And then when I got to college, again, kind of that socializing thing, I I wound up just hanging out with whoever happened to be around and then and I I realized that I really missed being with other Asian Americans uh, other people of color who had a shared experience mm-hmm. I mean sometimes it's just the food right like right. Uh, so being in in college I'll say taught me that because Tufts is a little bit outside of Boston I mean it's still a subway ride but I didn't spend that much time in Boston so I would say college near Boston taught me about about my identity but yeah I, w- I don't I don't know if Boston's taught me anything specifically where did your love for food come from I my father's mother was a really good cook and so when we, she lived in Sacramento when I was in San Francisco. So we got pretty regular access to that. So kind of establishes the foundations of Cantonese cooking. Mm. But I think where I really started to appreciate and love food mm. was when I started to live internationally. Mm. And I used food as the entry point every time I I had a new community that I was living in. Mm-hmm. So like when I was in the Marshall Islands, this I, I was on um, the deck of a freighter for five days um, to get to my island. Mm-hmm. So we we it's one of those like front loading ships. So they just kind of ram into the shore, and this front thing goes down, and all these kids just run on to the boat and you know they, they're all picking up my luggage and kind of this little pack of us is walking to my house and the first thing literally the first thing I haven't unpacked I haven't done anything uh, my family's got a meal set out on the one table that they had out kind of in the yard and there was this this meal ready for me um, and, a, and a chair which they had actually borrowed from the school. It was actually a desk they borrowed from the school. And they had a meal ready for me. And so the first words of sort of real Marshallese conversation, people had given me some phrases, but where I, where there was nobody around that was gonna back me up in English. Mm. You know, I was there surrounded by kids watching me eat, my host mother who had just made this food watching me. And so before I could speak any Marshallese, well, they were teaching me sort of the first words or telling me what all the food is. And then my way of kind of making my greeting was to really, really enjoy the food, like in an over-the-top kind of way, Mm -hmm. really just like be expressive and be appreciative. And so food was definitely an entry uh, into the community there. Uh, It was definitely a connection. Um, between my host mother and myself, we hunted for sea turtles and fish and sharks and lobsters and coconut crabs. So that was a huge bonding experience with my host dad and some of the other men on the island. And then a few times I got stuff shipped to me and and cooked stuff for my family to try, which was kind of a kick for them too. Um, So that was my first utilization of food as sort of a a cultural bridge 
And then I did it again in China, in every new location that I lived. Um, and then when I came back as an organizer on the Obama campaign, you know, we had folks having food in our headquarters in, in the office where I was based was really important uh, because people would connect over it or people would, mm -hmm. there were people that didn't want to make phone calls or knock doors, weren't good with computers, but were incredible cooks. Mm -hmm. And they would bring great, great food in and it just brought the entire team together. So I kind of just appreciate food uh, for its ability to cut across just about everything right. and bring folks together. So yeah. Nice. I want to hear more about Marshallese food. Okay. But we can talk off record. <laughs> you can go wherever. I, I, I do want to. I want to hear more about that too. Right. I'm like, man, fresh could, everything. That's amazing. Well, what I'm thinking about just that experience of like, you pull up, they've sat you down, given you this food. And both of you know I'm a I'm a super picky eater, so I'm like, yeah. what have, What if you didn't really like the food? <laughs> and like, but you don't, you obviously like that's a situation where it's. Like I'll, even, I'll tell you a story. You're like yeah. I'm allergic. Oh, yeah. no. <laughs> well, so one one night we had a bunch of I get somebody found some sea turtle eggs like buried in the beach, and so I come back and they're boiling in this pot, and my host father, you know gets one out for me and kind of tells me to just open it up and eat it and so I did and it's it's like in the top five of worst things I've ever eaten <laughs> and um it was like a like a grainy off watery egg I mean it was oh, it was bad no. and it it was tough to keep it down and he's like oh what do you think and I was like you know trying to be polite I was like oh, it's okay like I don't know. And he's like, we don't really like them. And I was like, <laughs> what? <laughs> you know, like, and I was like, why are we, you know, because I guess like we just were going to eat, the, they're there. So, yeah. you know, we're not going to not eat them, I guess. Yeah. But like, yeah. <laughs> so he was just like, yeah, they're not very good. Like chicken eggs are better. I'm like, yeah, they are <laughs> a lot better. So that, that was like the one story when you said things you didn't like. Yeah. Um, but mostly, uh, I mean the 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 fresh fish is you know really really good. It yeah. it just got a little bit. There wasn't much variety, mm -hmm. you know. And so one of the tricks that I used to get by the the monotony, or when there was something a little less palatable, was just to make myself a little hungrier. Mm -hmm. So I would just go and you know. So they had I didn't exercise because. It's funny when you when you have a very calorie restricted diet, mm. you don't you don't waste it. Right. I, I don't mean like mm. exercises waste, but if you're going to do physical activity, it's like you would I would never just go for a run, you know, because right. I didn't have enough food to make that. <laughs> right. I lost 20 pounds when I was there for oh for the gosh. year. So so what I would do is they harvest coconut meat. Um, and then they s sell that and people make it into oil and other products. So I would uh, try to make copra uh, mm. is what this, that's called. And mm. so it's it's pretty labor intensive work. So I would do that for a while or I would go and like try to spearfish for a bit so that there's some product of yeah. the physical exertion or, you know, I'll go 
hang out with the kids and we would, you know, just run around the island or whatever. But make yourself hungrier to make your food taste better. So that was definitely Because <laughs> you're so hungry, you don't nice. care. Yeah. Right. I mean, it works. And like, you know, so, but there were some delicious things. Coconut crab is really, really delicious. And it was one of my favorite activities to go and hunt for these things with my, uh, my host father. During the day, if you've yeah. ever been snorkeling in a tropical place, it's yeah. like that and you're swimming all around the reef. But we went at night too. Yeah. And the reef is like a, another planet, wow. you know, and the fish are sleeping. Yeah. So you can just swim right up to them and shoot them with your spear. <laughs> so that's, it makes that easier, but a lot of sharks come at night. So that's like oh. the trade-off. How, how big are these sharks? Like people size. Oh, no. Yeah. <laughs> no, 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 no. They're, yeah. People. The first time. <laughs> you, I'm good. You said it's so calm, too. Yeah, 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 yeah. Just the size no, like you fight the urge to to. <laughs> like scream because you're like you're underwater and you got the you know you're holding your breath and then you see a shark like the, it, it never became not unsettling for me you yeah, know yeah, 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 um yeah. so i didn't i didn't do it that much because i it made me too tired to teach yeah so oh, night fishing was like a weekend activity not a school night activity okay. and were you teaching english that was my main job, but I ended up teaching a lot of other subjects too because okay. I was I kind of only I was the only one with very much formal education. Okay. So most stuff outside of Marshley's language class, I would kind of help out with. Um, but the thing that I was really proud of was uh, a test prep class that I created um, for my eighth graders because they had a high school entrance exam they had to take. Yeah. And I think the national average was like 30% passage. Wow. And if you don't pass, your your chances of just even continuing on to, so you'd go to another island uh, to, the, to the high school. Mm. But the thing that really outraged me was when I found out that the, the test was administer, administered by Scantron. Wow. And it's like, we have a little island without electricity, you know, a little shack of a schoolroom with no supplies. Right. You know, it's hard enough to learn the subject matter right. in those conditions. And then the the very first time that these kids are ever going to see this this alien bubble sheet, right? It, it their future in high school is dependent, is dependent on that. And so I'm thinking like the barrier here is not even necessarily their knowledge or their proficiency right. in the subject. It's you write your name on this thing by filling in bubbles and right. like, you know, so at mid-service, I went to the uh, Ministry of Education in the Capitol and I procured an old test. Mm -hmm. um, so I knew what the format was gonna be. And I also borrowed many, <laughs> many, many Scantron sheets, mm. um, little, little cards. Um, distributed them to some of my other fellow teachers that were going back to their islands and I said you know I'm gonna do a test prep class so we, we I brought back hundreds of uh, Scantron cards mm -hmm. so we could practice and then I made a few versions of the test new versions based on the one that I had borrowed nice. and then we just practiced we practiced guessing we practiced you know all kinds of different testing uh, you know, tricks, like mm -hmm. strategies rather, not tricks. Um, and then all of them passed. Oh, wow. So all eight, eight of my eighth graders and one precocious seventh grader passed the exam <laughs> nice. um, and, and went on to high school. And I, I haven't stayed with them, but like, you know, that 
was more indicative of what I would say I was trying to do than necessarily just teach them English. They were like, what? All of them passed. Wait yeah, <laughs> yeah, yeah. No, it was great. And I mean, the, the community was happy. And But really, I, I wanted to be uh, an interesting community member. There's only That's 250 awesome. people on my island. Yeah. Everybody knows everybody. Doors are always open. You know, it's one little path, sandy mm. path down this one part of the island. So, you know, you're with your students and your community all the time. Right. So one of the things that I was really proud of that I stumbled upon accidentally, mm. I tried to start an after-school program mm. called it the Island Guard, and it was specifically to try to help some of the the adolescent males who didn't really have chores. Mm -hmm. Like the the girls were supposed to do all kinds of stuff to to you know make the house work, and mm. and the boys got into all kinds of trouble. Mm -hmm. So I was thinking, okay, what could we do with that time? Mm. So I had a bunch of tools and t-shirts and you know, t-shirts, I had them made in the in the capital. I had a bunch of tools shipped out to me and I came up with this idea that we would go around the island doing home improvement mm. uh, tasks. And a lot of the program that I, it didn't really take, mm. but a few of, of the the kids really did enjoy um, building stuff, mm -hmm. and so did I. So we actually ended up spending much of the last few weeks scavenging for like shipping pallets and fishing nets and things that kind of floated up, buoys, mm -hmm. and then building furniture mm -hmm. for folks, rebuilding a door, we built a bench, table, chairs, and then I remodeled my host mom's um, cookhouse on my very last night on island and so we my students and I worked into the night to make sure that this thing was finished and it's still one of the things I'm like very very proud of of nice. creating but so it was it was not just classroom time in fact yeah. you know it was it was the whole time what is my what is my impact you know what is my and how long were you there total 10 months 10 or 11 months okay yeah where did your love of just getting your hands dirty and making things like were you was that something that yeah, was done far, at home or as far back as I can remember? Yeah, like I and my I, I think my family will back this up that I would probably end up playing with the box that whatever birthday gift or Christmas gift would come in mm -hmm. more than like whatever was in the box. So the amount of cardboard and duct tape that I went through as a kid yeah. um you know it's massive because i was always trying to to literally build things but also i had a lot of fun kind of organizing um cousins and neighborhood kids to i guess you know like make believe kind of we we mm -hmm. we pretended we had an airport and casinos and grocery stores <laughs> we did star wars <laughs> yeah i mean just anything we saw i would try to like recreate yeah all kinds of forts airplanes um and we would all just role play and i kind of instinctively felt like i was the one that was sort of casting the spell mm -hmm. that would help everybody imagine where we were you know, mm -hmm. like, mm -hmm. um, you know, this thing is the control panel. It's not like this baby toy that has, you know, the alphabet on this, you right. know. And, you know, this is where we're flying and it's nighttime now. And so I don't know. That just, so vivid uh, imagination. Vivid imagination. So like is that why much. you wanted to try intro to drama? 
Yeah, <laughs> actually, yeah. I mean, I'm, I'm still like, if I can you know, figure out a time in my life where I have a little more downtime, I, I would still love to find some kind of, of uh, drama troupe and just like tr- try that, you know? Nice. So. so if you know of a drama troupe, email us. <laughs> I know some drama people. <laughs> right. I'm, I'm sure they we will teach, hit us up. We teach yeah. drama class, though. So. <laughs> cool. So you get back stateside. How f- how long until you ended up in China? Oh, immediately, uh, like two weeks. So I, <laughs> I, 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 I'm sorry. I don't mean to laugh, but I can I can imagine being home two weeks, being very bored and saying, "So what's next?" No, no, it wasn't. It wasn't like that. It yeah. was. It was the same program. Yeah, mm. but a different site. So I had gone into that world teach office oh. asking about China. China. Oh. And so right. yes, yes. I knew I didn't want to be a teacher mm. for another year. I actually wanted to be, um, I wanted to help the teachers. I wanted to be yeah. field staff. So after oh. my year in the Marshall Islands, I applied to be field staff in China. And I didn't get the job, but they gave me a spot as a volunteer. Mm. So I thought, okay, I'll, I'll volunteer one more year and I'll teach and then I'll apply again and try to be field staff. So. I went from 64 students, no supplies, mm-hmm. no culture of education, but all the time in the world, mm-hmm. to 1,100 students per week, wow. all the drive, all the culture of education, mm-hmm. and just 45 minutes with each class of 55 students once a week. Wow. So it's like you spend more time brushing your teeth in a week than you know 45 minutes and so what am am i supposed to teach 55 kids at a time you're like a robot yeah so (laughs) that got me uh i had to be a little more creative i think Mm -hmm. that's where that that was my first experience public speaking Mm -hmm. i will say because you get in front of and i so i had 22 classes a week i think and so you had to do the same lesson 22 times and keep it fresh so it was easy for one, two, three, but you get to lesson 17 of the same thing and you're just like, and I did, I did music. I, I, um, I recorded myself, I labeled everything in my kitchen where I, in my dorm, in my little apartment, and then I would cook American food, like grilled cheese. And mm. so I'd label, and I made my own little like cooking shows, which I would show in the classroom. Cause now we had oh, the technology. Yeah. yeah. But how do I communicate in a in a compelling way to 55 kids in 45 minutes and get right. something memorable to stick? Right. So it was totally different challenges. Literally inverse. Every advantage is now a disadvantage. Every disadvantage is now an advantage. So yeah. So I was a teacher in a in a middle school teaching seventh graders, 1,100 seventh graders uh, every week in um, a city called Changsha in Hunan province in China. So there was a two week break between the Marshall Islands and Changsha. Wow. So yeah. I taught English in Japan for eight months, Um, but it wasn't nearly the number of classes that you have. We maybe had three or four classes a day on like a bad day, but yeah, I was also not as as creative as you either, but that's that's super awesome. That's yeah, super awesome. I mean, the I did not learn all the students' names. Yeah, <laughs> understandable. <laughs> right. Understandable. Um, but some really really wonderful connections. I like it was not. It was hard to keep it fresh 
but usually once I got into the mm-hmm. class, especially there were some classes I like more than others. Yeah. Each class had a personality. Yeah. And um the ones that I that I got along with really well, it you, you can you can find it, you know, for for your students to find mm-hmm. some energy for them. So how much freedom did you have? In China? Yeah. With the curriculum or just with in the general? Cu- with the curriculum. A pretty much complete freedom. Wow, I nice. mean like they they there was a book but you you couldn't even get through one section of one lesson in 45 minutes. Right. So you had to get creative. And it was English. oral English that I was supposed to be teaching them. So I tried to iron out some of the 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 specific common errors like mixing sounds up and and this kind of stuff. Just things that'll help a little bit later on. Yeah. Um and so we just worked on that. We we just we worked on having fun. Basketball. Yep. Basketball helped a lot. Been I had there. I had like twelve they chose their English names. I had like twelve Kobe's in every class. <laughs> you know? Every every boy. Okay, what name do you want? Kobe is like yeah. okay. it's original. <laughs> Kobe <a> four. <laughs> <laughs> you know. That's hilarious. Uh, and oh go ahead. Uh what level of English? Did the students come in with? Uh, it varied. Okay. Um, some with pretty much none, and they would try to hide and shrink into the into the back of the class. It was a pretty it was a prestigious school, mm. so some of the the students were there because their families had access, and right. so you could yep. tell that they had maybe traveled, that they had had tutors, yep. so some just came up to me on the first day just ready to have a hey, conversation, yeah. Right, yeah. Right. So, there's, I mean, that was another challenge was, again, how are you gonna tailor a lesson to 55 kids with that kind of spectrum? Right, right. And, yeah. you know. Right. Did you go through any culture shock yourself being either on the Marshall Islands or in China? I think going to the Marshall Islands was too fast to have shock. <laughs> yeah, and and it was there were really difficult times that year. Mm. But overall, it was kind of delightful mm-hmm. figuring out that way of living. Mm-hmm. I mean, I hated the mosquitoes. Mm-hmm. And like you're constantly, you know, you've burned yourself on something or you stubbed your toe or you cut this or you, you know. So you're never re- very comfortable, mm-hmm. but overall, you know, I was not I was bored much less on this remote island. At least how I remember than I than I find myself maybe here mm-hmm. some days. Culture shock in a big way coming back. Mm-hmm. I was sleeping on a very thin, like woven mat. It was woven out of palm or coconut leaves on a, a concrete floor for my time there. So I couldn't sleep in beds for mm. a few weeks after mm. I got back. So like the first night back in my parents' place, I I had to sleep on the floor next to my bed. So mm. my folks found me next day and they're like, what happened? And then like overwhelming choice Mm. of things at the grocery store, of options to go out to eat, of sort of noise and speed, Mm. things, hot showers being just, just things were very built for the human being here. 
Mm-hmm. You know, mm-hmm. like in, on on my island, you noticed when you sat down in like a plastic chair, mm-hmm. like a manufactured chair, because this is so fit to your body. Because mm-hmm. a lot of the times you're just on the floor or you're, you know, sitting on a stump or, a, you know, something that's not built for the human body. So I remember appreciating the chance to sit in manufactured plastic chairs. Like, wow, this is pretty nice. So that was big. And then it's kind of whiplash going to China. Mm-hmm. You know, Changsha is the, you know, it's, you know, like the 20th something largest city. In it, but it's still like, I think, seven or eight million people. Wow. Um, so going to that where you've got just endless choice, endless variety of food and things to do and places and people. The culture shock in China was the worst because uh, b- to be Chinese American and mm-hmm. to live in China is mm-hmm. is a really difficult place in my experience. Mm-hmm. So that that was really the tough part for me. Can you speak? Can, oh. I was going to say, can you speak more on that? Yeah, can you expand on that? Yeah, yeah. It's it's a little hard because that was you know the the roughest part of my life um, for sure. Is the the time that I spent in China, um, and for that reason. Mm-hmm. I don't know if I was naive. Some part of me thought that there was going to be like a homecoming kind of experience where mm-hmm. I would reconnect with my roots. And mm-hmm. But one thing I learned in living in China and going to China is how American I am. Mm. Because I was not considered foreign or American and also not Chinese. And so outside of my close Chinese friends uh, who had enough patience or vision or interest or whatever to form a relationship with me, it was really kind of difficult to find the right place. Many of my white friends Mm. who I would normally associate with here, they enjoyed somewhat of an elevated status, almost like a celebrity status in China. Mm. And I think after a while, if you're continuously treated that way, it will kind of change you. It'll change your perspective. For me as well, I remember going to a club one night where everybody got in and I was asked to pay a cover charge as a a Chinese male. It wasn't just men. I mean, it was all all the white men got into the club for free, all the Chinese women, but Chinese males didn't even bother, and people thought, you know, I was kind of crazy for even wanting to go in there. Mm. And and it was quite a feat as well, I mean. Uh, And so I remember just thinking, this is so backwards, you know. know, I was was asked to be the translator all the time, even though my Chinese was relatively you know, much more advanced than most of my my fellow teachers. Mm. You know, if you were white and you could say hello and order a beer, people are just like, wow, your Chinese is so good. And I'm over here, you know, talking about, you know, social issues or life or whatever. And they're like, why is your Chinese so bad? I'm like, you know what? (laughs) (laughs) So those were just sort of the everyday experiences. But Mm. I, I guess maybe I had the wrong expectations going in. But I just felt very lonely, and and to be in a place with so many people, after being in a place with so few people, right. it was perplexing and disappointing, and 
profoundly depressing mm. to spend that much time um, feeling so lonely and so disconnected. Yeah. So that was a difficult experience. Yeah, that's so interesting. I went through something very similar in Japan. Just super excited to have gotten there and then kind of thinking in the back of my mind what it meant to be African-American in this homogenous country. Overall, really enjoyed the experience, but I think being in a city that was so far away from Tokyo, you just got different things in different places from Mm -hmm. stereotypes to and it wasn't necessarily even just the locals as much as it was it was also yeah like from the other teachers and seeing how they were put on this pedestal and like um and watching the other white the other white teachers who were from like england and australia who were put on this pedestal and then it was just like looking at me sideways, like, I don't know what to do with you. <laughs> I don't know about now, but back in the day, if you wanted to teach English in Japan, if you if you were Japanese or looked not white, you wouldn't get the job. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Mm-hmm. They didn't care. They're like, oh, you're white? Okay, yeah, you can speak English, even though you can have a very poor grasp of the language. Yeah. They didn't care. There's a lot of sketchy stories about Oh yeah, there was a company that went out of business. Yeah, yeah. there's were, so many there's, sketch yeah. stories about about yep. teaching English. So if yep. you're thinking about teaching English abroad, please do your research. Um, well, and the other thing too is in China, all the folks that are able to, you know, get that that sort of uh, the VIP treatment, mm-hmm. that's going away because you know we all know. I mean, look at this campus here. Right. How many Chinese right. students are here? Right. Pretty, they're, a lot. They're learning English. Right. And so they're going back to China with both skill sets. Right. Why are they going to hire, you know, an American who can only speak English, right. can't speak Chinese, right. you know? Like, so yeah. you really need to be able to do both. Step up your game. Um, to be able to compete. So that, there's definitely a lesson in that. So get your foreign language up. That's right. <laughs> and do, I mean, and you do should know Googles. a foreign language anyway. Yeah. Do your, do your good Googles. skill to have. I suggest Marshallese. Very useful. <laughs> right. I'm, I'm always translating for people. <laughs> no. Nice. I heard they that's have. Um, that's hilarious. They have some Japanese words in their they vocabulary. Do. How did yeah. you know that? Because there was one Marshallese guy that he was in a program. Anyways. So I want to go back to market share. Okay. And as as we as we wrap up, um, when did you take the leap? into entrepreneurship like the the full leap i took my first leap in beijing i tried to start a restaurant with a friend wow that idea was formed mostly over beers too many (laughs) beers okay just never even got close to off the ground it was just the most unbaked idea ever and it fell flat on its face and and is a lot of why I ended up back in my parents' house on Mercer Island yeah. after spearfishing for my food, like that kind of independence mm-hmm. to back to yeah. my high school room. Um, <laughs> and I was uh, working at a warehouse down in Kent, mm. really fortunate um, that Shout out knew to Kent. some folks. Yeah, <laughs> really fortunate that I knew some folks down there that gave me that job. Mm. And it was. Um, kind of organizing their warehouse and shipping off, you know, mostly auto parts and stuff. 
but it, it left me questioning, you know, my what I had done all these things for. Yeah. So that was the first time I took a really, really off-balance plunge and mm. landed exactly how you'd expect. Mm. Um, so this market share thing is the second. Okay. And so far, I haven't hit the ground yet. Nice. And I don't think I'm going to yeah. this time. But we're still fighting. I mean, we're still not out of the woods. Yeah. Um, so I think the plunge was that conversation with that friend when she nice. said, why don't you just start it? And I just was like, yep. Nice, nice. How can community get involved with what you're doing? There are all kinds of ways. If you have millions of dollars that you're looking to donate, <laughs> just contact me and I will pretty much drop everything and talk to you because you know, there are significant capital costs to building a market like this. So that's sort of the top level need. We yep. need folks that have the resources that want to build a new civic institution. Nice. Um, so joking, not joking. Yep. But then I really think about it like a a truly public ancient market, mm. you know, essentially an open space, relatively convenient for everybody to set up whatever it is they want to do or go and find whatever it is they need. Mm. That's the the starting point. And so what uh, what we're trying to do in this space is lower the barriers that would prevent a low-income immigrant or refugee from starting a business that's mostly capital, language, business expertise, and facilities. Mm. So we really take all four of those down to a, a significant degree if we are successful in building this space. Mm -hmm. So once we lower those barriers and some folks compete for the spots and we have really interesting food in there and people that are running real businesses, you know, this is this is asset-based community development. This is not nice. like, a, this. they're taking a risk. Like they're gonna have skin in the game. They're gonna be working their butts off like like anybody in, in the service industry knows. That's what they're going to sign up for. Uh, so there's no no free ride in this. But after that, you know, the question about how the community can get involved, right now, talking about this possibility, connecting with market share, you know, interacting with us on social media, contacting us to volunteer. Everybody has a way to help us build this market or everybody has a vested interest in one day spending time there. You know, unless you really detest food, unless you really detest being around energy and people and, and, and vibrant urban spaces, and I guess some people would, and mm. so you know this this is not for them. But for the vast majority of people, if this is something you can see as being positive, and even in these times, absolutely necessary for this city, then I encourage you to contact me, contact Market Share, um, and connect with with me and our other volunteers um, to figure out how we can plug you in. I don't know what the listener's skill set is, but I'm, I am I know that there's a place for the listener to help. And so we just need to talk and figure out wh where that is. But and yeah, e everything helps. And how can people connect with you on social media? You can find us on Facebook, um, but our website is marketshareseattle.org. And we've got links to our Facebook from the website. 
Um, I don't know what the URL is. I think you can search Market Share on Facebook, and we should come up. We're on Twitter. We're on Instagram. Um, those aren't as active. Facebook is definitely our most active platform. We are going to be sort of launching uh, a rebrand of ourselves pretty soon. So uh, it'll be really fun to come out with a, a more focused message. There's a lot going on in what we're doing, and we, we've spent a lot of time thinking about how to organize all of that so that people understand it uh, more easily. And then we are hopefully going to have an outdoor meal. We're trying to have it on the plaza of King Street Station uh, later this summer. So we're in the preliminary stages, but so far everything's looking good. So it's going to be a fundraising event for us, but also sort of a community civic food activity. Um, so we'll be selling tickets for that. So when those nice. go on sale, definitely, you know, bring bring friends, come come experience what should be possible every night that the weather's nice, yeah. is that we should be able to eat outside there. And then every day, indoors at that station, we should be able to hang out and, and connect over food. What's nice. the biggest lesson you've learned on this journey? Always go back to the community when you don't have the answer. That's really good. I like that. It, like the that. answer's out there somewhere. I love that. That's really good. Yeah. Cool. Favorite places to eat around Seattle? Um, kind of food-ish centric. Do- Dominique and I, we, we both, the uh, Huikimikia, sorry to the owners if we didn't get the name right. right but HKMG. HKMG, 12th and Jackson. Yes. Butterfried chicken wings and uh, the braised duck leg soup is my, uh, is my go-to there. I have to shout out Terra Plata up on Capitol Hill um, on Melrose. It's, it's uh, part of the Melrose Market building. Tamara Murphy is the chef and a friend and a mentor advisor um, to me in my role at market share and uh, her own journey uh, is is really inspiring as an entrepreneur so you know she shared a lot about her early days fighting for her place um, in in this city's food scene and um, so she's recognized as sort of one of the originals um, so her food is really globally inspired it's delicious it's the best ingredients and they have a killer rooftop on top uh, of the restaurant so a really great spot in the summer i think i there's a my favorite taco truck i i'm i don't know the name um but it's right at uh 12th and king um yes so it so good parking lot yeah there's a parking lot and they've created a little um, sort of wood awning yeah, so that you good. can sit and like I've I've checked out a few taco trucks around town and and the service is great and that is one good carnitas burrito. Nice. You know Bakeman's downtown. No, their um, pie. See, that would be me hitting the table. Yeah, uh, <laughs> his pie. I don't know what I had. Amazing. Bakeman's mm. is exactly the kind of old school uh, lunch counter that. I, you just wish there were more of and it's it's actually fun like that staff is is they'll give you they'll give it to you if you're taking too long in line and and, and it's cash only um, but it's one of my favorite places to have lunch downtown I have to kind of do an RIP uh, rest in peace to my favorite restaurant which was Hing Loon uh, in the International District it used to be on Maynard Street and it was really home style traditional Cantonese 
uh, food from mm-hmm. uh, like the region where my my grandmother was from, and they just uh, they had wonderful servers, and it was just a very comfortable little spot to be, and they had some uh, really really wonderful dishes that reminded me of of growing up, and mm-hmm. they they went out of business or were uh, sold many many years ago now, like probably three or four years ago. Um, mm-hmm. So I just remember them. So shout out to them. Okay. Well, thank you so much. Thank you both. Okay. This is this really is cool. Fun. This is a, a fun topic. Uh, culture is a fun topic of conversation Absolutely. to kind of just reflect over. So nice. thanks for doing this. Thank and you. I'll, I will share this podcast far and wide. Yes. Cool. Yay. Thanks, you too. Yes.